All right, well, we've been going through um, the defining the church, what it is, how it operates, why it operates the way it does, why uh, things are and or should be the way that they are, built on a foundation um, that God has laid out in His Word. And so uh, we're coming tonight to the end, the very last one, and, and so here's what my plan is to do. Uh, I, I know that we've been, we've spent... 12 lessons, but more than 12 weeks that we've been going through all of this, having some weeks off and things like that. Um, but tonight, what I thought would be advantageous is if we go through really each one and just kind of summarize in one bullet point what was said when we talked about that topic, all right? And I've, I've collapsed a couple into one bullet point um, on a couple of occasions, but for the most part, each week is a bullet point. And then underneath that bullet point, as a sub-point to that, deal with uh, what we do or why we do what we do as a result of that. Does that make sense? So that, that's kind of the idea, um, because I have the feeling that you, you, you mentioned that, Shannon, about technology, about bringing technology. There's other things that have been brought to this church, uh, and, and, <laughs> and I, think, I think to some extent there may be, in regards to some things that we do here, some things that are a little different. Uh, some songs, maybe, that we sing that are a little different, or some, some songs that we don't sing that maybe have been part of tradition and things like that. There may be other things that we do in, as far as how our church operates or things that we... Uh, participate in or directions that we go that might be a, a bring some questions to you or might be bring questions to other people that you go out why is it that we do that why is it that we do it that way um i think if if somebody were to say that the pastor is to his responsibility is to guard the theology of the church i think most people would say yeah that's that's pretty true he's kind of the point man on guarding the theology of the church and making sure that what's taught and read and, and thought through here is uh, true, right, right? The Bible says we worship in spirit and in truth, and it means a lot of things, but it at least means that, that we understand truly what we're, what we're doing. But I think if somebody were to say the pastor guards the ecclesiology of the church, most people would ask, what does that mean, right? Who knows what the term ecclesiology means? Well, ecclesia is the church. The word for the church in the New Testament is the word for a gathering. Uh, ecclesiology is the understanding of how a church operates. Now, that is not the most attractive piece of information that can be presented to a church. If you sit, stood up on Sunday morning and you said, hey, look, we're going to talk about ecclesiology for the next 13 weeks, most people would be like, uh, I'm out. But the reality is, a lot of what goes on around you, or the way the church operates, has everything to do with ecclesiology. And ecclesiology has everything to do with your theology, with what you believe about God. Um, so we're going to go through each one and really apply, show, uh, demonstrate how all the things that we talked about in this church-defined series, which is ecclesiology, how the church operates, uh, is applied directly to our congregation or perhaps should be applied to our congregation. So let's go through that. Um, we said in, at the very beginning, God's mission to unify the church has been seen in primarily two ways. First, we have been unified uh, and reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. You know, we've been forgiven of sin uh, by becoming new creation, Paul says. But second, He has united us to one another 
in the body of Christ. So we have, um, we have been brought together, we have been unified, we exist, the very fundamental purpose for which the church exists is to demonstrate the glory of God to the nations. That is our goal. And, and we talked about how that's difficult, because as people come in here, they're going to interact with not a bunch of people who are perfect in every way, and who just exude the love of the Lord. Can, Alan, can you let her in? Sorry, she's right there at the door. Um, but uh, people, they're not just going to come in and see a bunch of people that just exude the glory of God. They're going to see, from time to time, sinners who, as we bump into each other, there is friction and sometimes sparks. And we don't want to set the forest ablaze, but there's sometimes some friction. And so how is it that we do that? Well, we have to recognize that we have been, first of all, purchased, bought by the blood of Christ and forgiven. So therefore, our sin has been reconciled through Christ's blood to God. So we live not as perfect people, but people who have been justified by God through Christ. And that's what we have to make known. The second is that we've been brought together and unified together as a church body. So when there are sparks or when there, are, when there is friction, those are things that we, because of what Christ has done in us, have got to come together and build back those bonds of unity, right? That's, that's a, a mission of ours. We're going to even see this Sunday in Philippians 2, uh, or Philippians 4, 2 to 7, where Paul actually appeals to, a, to two people who are in the church of Philippi who are having a spat. They're in the midst of a spat with one another, and he's like, well, hey, we got to get along, all right? We got to, we got to bury this thing. So that being said, if that is the purpose of the church, if that's what God has done through Christ, then what does that mean for us? With, along with evangelism, which is what most Christians normally think, that the church is an evangelism arm. That's what we do. That's exclusively what our job is. But along with evangelism, a core mission of the church is a ministry of reconciliation. That's what our, our, our job is as people. It's, it's um, detrimental to the mission of the church that there would be ongoing friction between people. You understand? So the ministry of the church is a ministry of reconciliation. By restoring relationships interpersonally between one another, right? We demonstrate to the world the glory of God because that relationship is restored rather than continue in ongoing friction. How many of your friends, perhaps non-Christian friends maybe, do you know that just live in a spat with somebody? I'm no longer speaking to that person. They just have their walls built up, right? That doesn't tell the world that you're forgiven in Christ. That doesn't tell the world that you understand what grace and mercy and forgiveness actually means. What shows the world the glory of God and demonstrate His grace and mercy through Christ is when you can radically forgive somebody even though there's been an offense created against you. You understand? So it's core to our operation as a church that we have an ongoing ministry of reconciliation. And that also means that when people come to us and they tell us of their sin, our job is not to ridicule them 
or to drop our jaw at what we hear, or to clutch our pearls, or act like there's some great grievance that we've never heard before, but it's to point them to Christ, and to say, I too have been reconciled to God through Christ. He has forgiven me of a great offense, and He can forgive you as well. And it's through Christ that He does that. That's how the ministry of reconciliation is carried out as we minister to other people. Um, And what that also means uh, is that we learn to accept one another. I want to read just a couple of passages here um, from Romans 14.1 and and Romans 15.7. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. (laughs) I love that. And Paul says this so many times. I love that, that the one who's weak in faith, mind you, has particular holidays he does or does not celebrate, all right, because he's weak in faith. That's the definition. He's got particular holidays that he's not, he's got particular foods that he stays away from because he's weak in faith. The one who's strong in faith, he says, welcome him, but... Don't fight over the opinions. Don't talk about Halloween and how you can, it's okay to celebrate it and all that. Don't talk about alcohol and how it's okay to drink it or not. Don't talk about the food and how much food you can eat and, and be okay. It, just put it away. Stop talking about it. I love that. But then look at Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. The, the word there, welcome, I, don't, I hate it that the ESV translated it that way. Because it, it, is, it carries the idea of acceptance. Therefore, accept one another. Even as Christ has accepted you. That, that's the goal here. And, and, and a, a professor friend of mine has said that that verse, Romans 15, 7, is the summary of the entire book of Romans. Think about that. All that's in Romans. You know how deep theologically it is. You read through it and you're like, what on earth is he saying there? I, don't, I can't even put it together. And you get to the end and his point is, therefore, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's in Romans. Therefore, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. It's phenomenal. So, Our ministry as a church is a ministry of reconciliation where we accept one another even where one is weak in faith or maybe one is different than us or maybe one has different opinions on certain things and the way things shape up, the way the end times hang up or all those kinds of things. They have different opinions. All right? Don't quarrel about them. Be quiet. If you can't talk about it in an edifying way, just don't say anything at all. All right? Very simple. Uh, But very hard to do. Uh, Okay. So, the next bullet point here, local church membership is the recognition that one is a legitimate follower of Jesus inasmuch as can be determined by the fruit evident in his or her life. It's also a formalized submission to the elders of the church and to the members of the church. So, when we talk about local church membership, all we're really saying is that the local church should be a small depiction of a bigger reality, which is the people that Christ has saved. 
So the people that are members of the church are people whose lives demonstrate that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence inside and therefore they are born-again believers. That is what local church membership really is. And so how do we do that? Well, there's fruit that needs to be evident in their life, namely the fruit of repentance. There needs to be the fruit of faith, that they have a belief in Jesus that is true, that is right, that is according to Scripture. There needs to be the evidence of repentance of sin, that they understand what sin is, that it's had a, 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 an effect of separating them from God. They understand the restoration that, that comes only through Christ, and that they're living in that faith and trusting that Christ is enough to forgive them of their sin. So there needs to be that fruit. But then the membership part is an actual formalized commitment. And it can take many different forms in the way it's formalized. You might have to do a pastoral interview and then this, that, and the other, and different denominations even do it slightly differently. But the point is, there's a, there's a formalized commitment where the person says, I'm submitting not only to the teaching and the ministry of the, the elders of this church, but also submitting to the fellow members next to me. And why would that be important? Because those members are the ones that are correcting you, that are building you up, that are encouraging you, that are actually going to step on your toes from time to time. And when you formalize that commitment, you're promising that I'm going to step on your toes from time to time. But going back to the first point, we're also promising that when there's friction, there's going to be reconciliation, right? So, so it's this formalized commitment where we come together. But in order for that formalized commitment to actually work, the person has to be born again. If they're not born again, then why would they ever be a member of the church? We, we'd have to have regenerate membership. So, what that means then for our church is that membership of the church is the business of the church. You understand. There, there's, there's plenty of people that will tell you that the church is a business. That's false. Church is, is not a business. A business is driven by profits, and a church is, is not. A church can function on zero dollars, believe it or not. We just had a finance committee meeting where we're going to test that theory. No, I'm just kidding. We're not. Uh, <laughs> but, but there's plenty of churches around the world that function on nothing. They, have absolute, they don't have two nickels to rub together. They don't have a building of their own. They meet under a tree. And they exist as a church just fine. That can happen in a church. You can be that. And so the church is not a business. The business of the church is the membership that's there. And that means the things that we engage in, what we are about, is not only the glory of God to the nations, but actually testifying to the nations, that is our brothers and sisters sitting next to us, that Christ is real, and that He takes up residence in us, and that we have a relationship with one another, and that we rub up against one another, and we you know, confront one another, we encourage one another, we build one another up. So the membership of the church is the business of the church. So when I came here, we transitioned the name, the word business meeting to member meeting. And a lot of people were like, ah, it's just called that. It's still business meeting. Well, that's not technically true. There, there will be member meetings in the future where we don't vote on anything. <gasps> How could we not vote on something? Well, if we're a member meeting... 
then what is it that we're concerned about? We're concerned about the life of the church. What's happening in the church? What's the ministry of the church? What is happening in the lives of members of the church? So what we're concerned with is not the money and how it's spent. And, and you can write this down and it will be true in every Baptist church. I can promise you across this great land of ours that business meetings will be relatively poorly attended on a Wednesday night or whenever they have them until it comes time for the budget. And then when the budget comes down, the place is packed from, you know, floor to ceiling and standing room only because everybody wants to know where the dollars are going, right? Because what has been taught to us over and over and over again is that that's where the power is, in the money. That's not true in a church. The power isn't in the money. Power is in the membership. If the membership is regenerate, if the membership is bought by the blood of Jesus, if the membership is loving and kind, then what's going to be true about the Spirit inside the room in a church? What's going to be true about the, the, the agenda of the church? Well, it's going to be towards evangelism. It's going to be toward worship. It's going to be toward the actual functioning of the church in this world. But what happens if the church is not regenerate? It's going to be about the money. All right. Next, being a Christian is more fundamental to your identity than your family. That's uh, pretty in your face. More than your family. Your ethnicity, your profession, or your, your nationality, your sexuality, your personality, or any other way that this world would try to identify you. And so, the unity you share with every Christian supersedes every other bond. Listen to how Jesus put it in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I want you to just sit on that for a second and think about how controversial that statement is. If you come after me and you do not hate your closest family members, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Now, what does he mean by that? What could he possibly mean by that? Does he really mean hate? Well, kind of. Because he's going to tell you if you're not willing to lose your life for my sake then you cannot be my disciple. So what does he mean? Hate your life equals willing to lose your life. So what does hate your family members mean? Equals willing to lose your family members. That's what he means by that. If you're not willing to lose everything you have, even your closest relationships, it's easy to find somebody who might be willing to lose their house or their possessions. There's, there's plenty of secular people that hold money in an open hand. I know that's hard to fathom, but there are plenty of secular people that don't really care that much about money or possessions. But when it comes to your kids, your wife, 
your mother and father? That's a different story. Can you hold those in an open hand too? So Jesus takes following him and being his disciple as above and beyond every other relationship or even your, the very core of who you are is superseded by your relationship with Christ. So therefore, the person sitting next to you and the relationship that you have with them supersedes every other relationship you have in this world, which is pretty fundamental. So, since diversity grows naturally from the gospel, that means we preach the gospel and we don't, we don't really control who our brothers and sisters are, right? We, we preach the gospel and the people that believe, believe. So you might be sitting next to somebody who is formerly of a completely different religion, but has since given that up and come to Christ, or maybe from a completely different ethnicity or background of some kind. Poor and rich, all kinds of different things. So diversity grows naturally from the gospel. As we preach it, people come. That is up to the Lord. That's not up to us. So it, it could be people from any background. We, therefore, as a church body, push back against our own tendencies to congregate with people that are like us. That is what we do. Shocker and spoiler alert, you're going to congregate with people that are like you. And it's our job as a church to push back against that because that's going to be our natural tendency. So if you go into a church where there is Sunday school, how are those Sunday school classes going to be divided normally? Age, sometimes also by gender. So you might have a ladies class, but I can almost guarantee you that it's not ladies from 18 to 80. Normally, it's going to be ladies that are older, ladies that are middle, ladies that are slightly younger, and then ladies that are young, right? Four different classes of ladies. Or you have people that are, you got the, the white hair class, that's the next graduation, the next Sunday school class is heaven, right? You got that Sunday school class, and you got the one below that, and then they keep going down by age, sometimes by married versus single. Point is, they're divided by affinity. Because we like to be around people that are like us, right? But one of the things that I, I, we've done over the last, I don't know, it's probably been maybe a couple of years now, is gone to building blocks. Where every 13 weeks, things are different. So you're, you pick which class you want to go to for 13 weeks, and then we shuffle them up again, right? That's the idea anyway. Um, and part of the reason for doing that is specifically to push back against that age segregation that tends to happen inside the church, or gender segregation that tends to happen in the church. And I want you to sit next to people that you don't know. Be in a class, hear their opinion of somebody that's of a completely different age and completely different station of life than you're in. Because you need to hear the way that they think. And you're going to hear when the book of Jonah is studied. You're going to hear the young person go, how do we know that Jonah was a real person? How do we know that he could really be swallowed by a large fish? And you're an older person, and you're going to sit there going, what? How can they be questioning that? Right? You're going to hear the questions that younger people ask. And, and younger people, you're going to hear the things that older people struggle with and the questions that they ask. So that's, that's part of the reason for that. We're, we want to push back against those things, and we would like even small groups to be that way as well. The people that meet in our home 
your small group are mostly empty nests. I got a couple of them in this room, so I got to be careful about what I say. I'm just kidding. Uh, but a couple, a few of them are in empty nesters. So it's a different station of life than we're in, and we we enjoy being around people that have kind of been there, done that. And then I, I would hope that being around our rambunctious children, they they would maybe remember what it's like to be <laughs> a parent with with kids that uh, sometimes embarrass you. Um, so, so the point is, because the diversity is happening based on the way the gospel goes out naturally, what then also our mission is, not only of reconciliation, but also to encourage that kind of diversity in the church and push it and regularly encourage people to be around people that are not like you. Um, okay, so next, God has always created people by His Word. We see this all the way back in the very beginning of Genesis. He creates everything by His Word. He speaks, and everything comes into existence. But, um, but then later on, through His Word, He also speaks to His people Israel. He calls His people Israel out of Egypt, He says. He then sends the prophets to the nation of Israel, and He says, I will put My Word in your mouth. And they speak the Word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. They speak that to the people, and there's a corrective agency to his word, a way of creating his people out of a wicked generation by the words of the prophets. But then, obviously, we see in the New Testament, what is the word in the New Testament? Jesus Christ, the living embodiment of the word of God, comes to us and creates his people, saves them, dies for them, gives them forgiveness of sin. He, he creates people again by his word. And then what, what happens now in the New Testament era? Now that Christ has ascended, what word do we have now? We have His word, the Bible, which is God-breathed. It's able to teach and train in righteousness and correct that the man of God may be built and equipped for every good work, he says in 2 Timothy. So we know that that's what the function of the word of God is and that as we teach it, as we uh, explain what the word of God means to the people, people come alive at the hearing of the gospel. There are dead people that walk into church on a Sunday morning, or whenever the gospel is shared, but on Sunday morning, they walk in, they sit down on the pew, they hear the gospel preached from the pulpit, they hear it sung, they hear it read, they hear it prayed, they hear it in a number of different capacities, but they hear it delivered to them, and life is born right there in the pew, where they had no faith when they walked in, and they have faith now. They had, no, uh, they, they had tons of sin and no repentance when they walked in. And now they understand conviction of sin and they come to repent of sin. By all accounts, fruit is being born in their life because the Holy Spirit has made a change in them by the hearing of the gospel. Okay, if that's true then, what we do on Sunday morning is we preach expositional sermons as often as possible so as to as nearly as possible that is expositional sermons as nearly as possible reflect the author's intent um, I'm going to read all of this and then, and then I'll, I'll explain this, this way God's word sets the agenda for the sermon he remains the primary teacher and he through his word obviously therefore equips his saints, and, and also saves people, right? So what, what, I, what we mean by that is when I get up on Sunday morning, 
in front of everyone. My, my job is to open the Bible, to read a passage, to explain what each part of the passage means, and then apply that directly to us as it comes in conflict with what our normal desires are. That's my job. That is what it is. It's not to impress you with rhetorical devices. It's really not even to manipulate you or bring you to tears with the words that I would say. My job is to explain the text. That may bring you to tears. That's not me doing that. That, that is the Lord working in you. But here's what that means, and here's why I think this is really, really important for a church to get. What we believe about the Scriptures is that they're God-breathed. That the Scriptures are able to correct, to train in righteousness, and equip you for every good work. We don't believe that the pastor is able to equip you for every good work. It is through the Word that He equips you. Right? Okay. If that's the case, then the rhetorical devices that are used, we may find some of them to be more intriguing and more engaging. In other words, the way a pastor presents a sermon might be on some Sundays very good, and other Sundays terrible. Some Sundays might keep you on the edge of your seat. Other Sundays might bore you to tears. Some Sundays it might be short and sweet and to the point. Some Sundays it might be long and dry, which is most Sundays, long and dry and arduous and a difficult thing to get through, right? But what we're saying, though, is that it's not Him that's training and equipping me. It's the Word. So what that means is, if what He's saying is true, it doesn't matter if it's engaging, okay? I mean, I, there's a point to be made, but, but really, that's not the point, that it, that it matters that it's engaging. That's not what we're saying. We, that's not what we believe. What we believe is that if it's true, and if I understand how that text applies to me, even if it was delivered in a boring package, even if it's delivered in a way that wasn't compelling, it still has a way of training and equipping me for a work that I don't even know I'm going to do. Understand? So there, there's an important thing to understand about that, is that the Word can come through many different people. The Word can be taught by many people in the church. And it still has a way of impacting and training and equipping you the work of ministry, whether or not that's done in the most compelling way or not. Because the Word does the work in the congregation, not the man. Understand? All right. Now, who is it that does the teaching? How are the offices shaping up in the church? There are two leadership offices specifically called out in Scripture, and both are done by plurality of men. We're told this over and over. The offices of elder and deacon. Elder and deacon. So we obviously have the qualifications for each office in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13. We have the, uh, the, the um, qualifications for the elders 
in Titus 1, 5-9. But one of the things that we often see in churches and um, it is obviously that, that I think in most churches your deacons are pluralized. In other words, there's more than one men, man doing the role of deacon. Often in churches, one singular person is playing the role of elder, pastor. Um, but that's not what we find in the New Testament, actually. Look in Acts 14. Uh, I have, I think, on maybe on your sheet, did it put down Titus? What, what did it put down? 14, 23. Okay. I'm, I'm going to read uh, Acts 14. Let me, uh, let me get to it real quick. Acts 14. Well, I thought I was. Maybe I'm not. Uh, hang on one second. I'm going to get to Acts 14. I'm going to read it. Uh, okay. Sorry about that. Acts. 1423. Uh, and you can feel free to look in your Bibles if you have them, but, or just mark it down. That's Acts 14:23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The mission of the apostles, as they went around planting churches, was to appoint elders, plural. In every church, we see elders in Ephesus coming to, from, from the church in Ephesus coming to Paul. This task of pastoring the church through the teaching ministry of the church, shepherding its, its direction and all those kinds of things is done by plurality of men. That is both elders and deacons, but they have two different functions. So what do we then understand as the role of elder and deacon? So the deacons, therefore... Our deacons uh, are, are given appointed tasks. That's what they're supposed to do. So they're given tasks of service, which they are empowered to take ownership. And members are encouraged to follow their leadership in these service areas. So if you look at Acts uh, 6, uh, 6, 1 to 7, I want to read that. It's where we first get um, this call of deacons, if you notice what's happening here. Now in these days, he says, Acts 6.1, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole, con whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and, uh, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permeneus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They set before, they set before the apostles, uh, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Um, so this word of God increasing at the end of this passage is enabled because the deacons take on this task of service, specific, specifically serving the tables and the widows that were being neglected from the daily distribution. 
And the, the, the apostles who are teaching the word, who are preaching the word, they function as elders in the church of Jerusalem. They're, they're, they basically say to the congregation, look, we're preaching, we're teaching, we're basically directing the, the church as it, as it goes, uh, and, and all of that, and controlling its ministry, and, and we don't have time for this. So we want people to get up and do that task specifically, men of good repute. So this is the formulation, essentially, of the deacon ministry that then we see carried on throughout the rest of the New Testament. So deacons take ownership of a specific task that they're appointed to. So in our church, uh, we had a deacons meeting at the beginning of this year where I basically set out, here are some tasks that we need accomplished. Things like uh, our audiovisuals, which Robert is so conveniently has taken up, and so if you have a question about the projector or the screen, he's the one to ask. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's taken up the responsibility of, of basically the deacon of audio and visual. Um, we have uh, uh, Joe Ferris, uh, uh, Richard Thomason, and David Maxwell, who are doing special care, which is ministry to widows, which is ministry to uh, shut-ins, which is also um, just all kinds of greeting ministry. There's like a, a, what we found out is like a billion different things that are put in there, and so we realized we need some more deacons in that regard. Um, but, but you understand part of the, the job here that's been done is really wanting to say, first of all, these deacons in particular are good at these things, and to define what success really looks like for them. What does it look like to serve in this capacity? And when they begin doing it, they know clearly what their goals are, how they're going to lead the congregation in service, how they're going to serve other people, and what the parameters of their service are. It helps them to be able to function within the body. And so then, as they do those kinds of things, then the church body, they recruit the church body to come in and help. So you've got them doing special care, but then Philip and, and, uh, and Jeremy Hoggle are, are setting up and, and doing all the kinds of things for uh, potluck and all kinds of things that are involved in set up and take down and things like that. And what do they do when potluck comes around? They give you a call and they say, would you be willing to serve, right? And so they're, they're leading in service in our church. That's the function that deacons have in the church body and they're, they're essentially recruiting you. So our job is to respond to their recruitment and say, I'm willing to serve. All right, But they're over those areas, and it's, it's important that they be so. And then, when we need to replace them, we also know what we're really looking for. When Robert, uh, in a few years, goes down and has to sit out a rotation, uh, we're looking for a deacon of audio and visuals. We're, uh, I mean, Joe, I love you, but you're probably not going to be the deacon of audio and visuals. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, so, but we know what, what kind of service person we're, we're looking for to take that responsibility. But further, the next sub-point here, the church should recognize a plurality of elders to oversee the teaching, direction, and spiritual ministry of the church. The reality that we have to recognize is there's men that have been gifted with the ability to teach the congregation. It comes more than just through the pulpit. It also is taught to you in building blocks. It's another function of building blocks to put before you people that can teach. And that you know when you see them, they can teach, they can handle the Word. I'm growing, I'm learning in, this, in the ministry of the Word here. It comes by more people than just myself. Um, next bullet point. With these two offices, um, while these two offices lead and serve the church, it's still the congregation as a whole 
that has the final authority specifically in three particular significant matters of church life. That is discipline, membership, and guarding against false doctrine. Congregationalism is a distinctive of Baptist throughout history. We are Baptists. We do believe in congregational authority. But there's a reason we believe in congregationalism. If you have been born again, if the Spirit is in you, then we believe He also leads you and empowers you to respond to leadership that comes through His Word. So, previously, you've probably thought that, well, it's either we are congregationalists or we're elder rule, right? Where the elders just set the agenda, they tell you the terms, and then they tell you this is how it's going to, how the cow eats cabbage. Uh, our Presbyterian friends would probably res- respond to that. But, uh, but it, nevertheless, that seems to have been a largely two categories. But that's not Baptist. We, we first of all believe that elders do have a responsibility to lead and teach the congregation through the Word. And then the congregation has a responsibility to respond to the teaching of the elders and operate through a governing body, essentially. So when it comes to membership, when it comes to church discipline... When it comes to uh, you know a, a significant matters like a guarding against false doctrine, those are things empowered by the congregation as a whole, of which I'm a part. I'm a member of the congregation, but that's another part of it. Is that we are together governing the church while responding to the leadership of the elders. It's a both and uh, elder leadership, congregational rule, and so therefore, the church body should be led by the plurality of elders, um, but, but ruled by the congregation. The congregation responds positively to the leadership of the elders, yet it is a safeguard against unbiblical leadership. So you as a congregation are still able to respond against el- uh, eldership or a leadership that oversteps its bounds. They become authoritarian, and there's uh, provision in the scriptures even to lay that out. The church uses its authority, this next bullet point, the church uses its authority to exercise discipline because an expectation of holiness remains on God's people. God has called them out, uh, and He's called them to holiness, and part of your responsibility as a church, part of your authority, what it means to be congregationally ruled, is that you have control over the membership of this church. That includes taking people in, we vote, we hear their testimony, we hear their faith, we get to know them. But then after that, if someone oversteps their bounds and remains in unrepentant sin, and despite calls for repentance, they continue to be obstinate, ran off on his spouse, and just keeps going, and never will come back, it is our responsibility as a church to discipline that person, right? It's our responsibility to say, this is what Scripture teaches, this is what we should be held to, And if for some reason you don't want that, then that means you're not a Christian. And we need to help you understand what it means to be a Christian, right, through church discipline. Uh, So so therefore, we have a responsibility to ensure that every member uh, uh, on our role is accounted for and determined to be a member based on the fruit of the Spirit evidenced in their life as opposed to any other standard we might apply, history, friendship, or their family goes here, or any other consideration. Our call is to say, first of all, who is here? Who is our church? Who are the people that are 
are participating in our church body? Who are they? And if there's people that are on our roll that are somewhere else, do we know where they are? Are they worshiping at the temple of Satan? I don't know, maybe. Are they going to Bedside Baptist or St. Mattress Episcopal? You ever heard of these churches? They're very popular on Sunday morning. Right? You got it? It went. St. Mattress Episcopal, Bedside Baptist? You never heard that one? The, 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 you just sleep through Sunday? Uh, you got it? Okay, yeah, sorry. It's not funny. Yeah, it's not funny. Those are old ministry jokes, yeah. Uh, yeah. Bedside Baptist and St. Mattress Episcopal, those are, those are always old. Um, but, but the point is, if they're not here, why are they not gathering with the body? Why? Because the Word tells us to not forsake the assembling of the saints together, as is the habit of some. So if they're in the habit of not going, then is, it's, whose responsibility is it to say, why aren't you going? That's ours as a church body. Why aren't you going? And if the response is, I just don't feel like going. Or if the response is, I don't want to go. If the response is anything other than, you're right, I should be going, and a repentance in that they return to church, then we have to walk through steps to help them understand what it actually means to be a Christian and what, what it, what, what's not a Christian. Christian responds to the Word of God in repentance and, and faith. Um, so it's, it's our responsibility to do that and to police, really, the, the um, membership of our, our church. Although that sounds terrible, police. That doesn't sound like a very... Yeah. 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 So, and, and you know, uh, going back to Matthew 18, Jesus walks through this with the disciples. Again, all the scriptures are listed there, and you can, except for the Acts 14 passage, but all the scriptures are listed there. You can go back and read them, but, you know, the the point is, Jesus is making is like, look, these are the, sh- the sheep that belong to the Lord. And your job is to care for them as he cares for them. So if they have said to you, I am a Christian, I am a member of his body. And then they go run off and we just go, see ya. And we don't go care for them. And we don't ask them what's happening. And we don't, or let's say they fall into sin, and we just kind of turn a blind eye to it and ignore it while it just sits in here amongst us. And we don't ever confront it lovingly and say, let's walk through what repentance looks like here. Then we're not caring for them. And believe it or not, there's a whole host of people that respond positively to that, that are absent from church or have fallen by the wayside, or maybe fallen into sin. And a large part of it is due to a lack of care from the body. And that if confronted, we'll respond positively. There's a whole host of other people who think that they are Christians and assume that on Judgment Day, they're going to stand before the Lord, and He's going to welcome them in, in spite of the fact that they show no evidence of belief at all, as the New Testament would define belief. But yet we have conferred on them the title of member, and it's by our word that they have that kind of security and feeling. And that's a problem. And so it's important for the church to help define what it actually means to be a Christian and help people follow Christ. And sometimes that's in some ways that are hard, that are difficult. Um, next, the, the corporate worship of the church is regulated 
by God through His Word and includes prayer, reading of Scripture, preaching and teaching, baptizing believers, the Lord's Supper, singing and giving. And all of those are listed there as evidence of what we are to do when we gather together. This is our responsibility as we gather to do these sorts of things. So that means that we can't just in the worship service just decide whatever it is that we want to do, right? And have a whole host of other things that, are, that we throw into the mix that aren't told to us to actually do in the Word, all right? Okay, this is where the rubber meets the road right here. Are you ready for this one? All right, don't get up and get mad. Let me explain. Therefore, we don't engage in things unsanctioned by the Word of God, like puppet shows, What's the blank? Altar calls, interpretive dances, skits, plays. We sing songs that are theologically true. I know you're probably thinking, wait a minute. Altar calls? Well, one reason why I put that in there is because that's the series we're going to next, is salvation defined. What happens at salvation and how do we understand it? Believe it or not, the way someone comes to faith in Christ is through the Holy Spirit's work on their heart, bringing them to conviction of sin, their repentance and faith in Christ. They do not come to Christ by walking down an aisle. First. Second, they do not join a church by walking down an aisle. They don't go public with their faith by walking down an aisle. They go public with their faith through baptism. There is nowhere in Scripture that points out an altar call as the way we should do it. Not only that, Christians throughout 18 and a half centuries of the church had never even heard of an altar call until Charles Finney came along. Give us your opinion on Charles Finney. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Char- yes, I understand. Char- Char- Charles Finney introduced the idea of an altar call. And since then, Baptists thought it was a really good idea. It was a way to, to increase numbers in about the 1900s or so and started implementing it until all of a sudden when Billy Graham did it, then everybody thought that was the best way to do it. And in fact, it actually works against the theological truth of how someone comes to faith in Christ through repentance. Um, How someone goes public with their faith, baptism. It actually gives them some sort of token of affiliation with Christ when all they did was walk down an aisle. What do we know about this person? Um, So that's not how people come to faith. And believe it or not, people will come to Christ without an altar call. And through the church doing its job of looking at the fruit produced in their life, affirming that in baptism. Um, But give me 13 weeks on the back end of this, the next 13 weeks, as we talk about salvation, what happens in salvation? How does someone actually come to Christ? And what then is the result for our church? Um, As we talk about that, see if maybe I can convince you if you're still on the fence. Um, So Next, Baptists, in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention, that is what it means to be Southern Baptist, which is 
the, the, the last little item that we talked about last week. Uh, they participate in giving to the cooperative program. Um, the cooperative program is that collective fund that we use to fund uh, global missions. Therefore, our missional strategy, since we are a Southern Baptist church, is primarily local. All right? We're Emmanuel Baptist Church, Tuscaloosa. Okay? So when you sit down and you ask yourself, what is God's mission for Emmanuel Baptist Church? It's in the name Tuscaloosa. God put you in Tuscaloosa? We're going to throw in Northport on there too because it's, it's just, it's attached to us. I mean, you can't tell when you leave one and go into another, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he put us in Tuscaloosa Northport, and he wants us to minister to Tuscaloosa Northport. That's why we are here. So our mission primarily is local, and our, our mission secondarily is cooperative, meaning that we have taken on the moniker Southern Baptist Church. And what that means is that we made a promise that the cooperative program is going to be our global missional strategy. I'm a Southern Baptist. Shocker. I don't think independent missions works very well. All right? I'm going to be dead honest with you. I've never been ashamed of that. Southern Baptist, I believe that the cooperative program is the most effective way to give, particularly for a small church who wants to cooperate with the global mission of Christ going to where he has not been named, and yet at the same time has a really small budget and a small staff and very little oversight on what goes on here and needs to entrust that to people who actually are closer to the mission field and who can see what's going on. And that's how Southern Baptists operate, and that's how we should operate. So it's first local and then cooperative. All right. Last few minutes, we got any questions? I know there's enough fodder for conversation. Go ahead. <laughs> Depending on how you feel about NATO. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, to, to some degree, I mean, the, the, I think the idea has, there's some similarities in the idea, I guess I would say. Um, but more, I think that's honestly uh, a little bit of how you're seeing it function in the New Testament. Church commissions a person to go out. Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas, they go out, they report back, hey, we need to help this church, the church in Jerusalem, and so they collect a collective fund and take it out to that particular person. And they support them where they, where they can, they give them people to support and things like that, but I think it's, you know, more than that, like what, the, what Southern Baptists have done through the cooperative program in global missions has been an effective missional strategy sending 3,500 paid missionaries out to the rest of the field that, that really don't have to spend a, a good deal of their time raising funds and things like that, spend, you know, 12 months on the mission field, you know, out of the year. That's, but that's, that's part of it. Now, there's an argument to be made that, hey, you say, well, look, we're, we're pushing away from the Southern Baptist Convention. We don't want that anymore. But if you've got that moniker and you've taken on that name, then that comes with a promise. Like, you've made that promise. So... There's an argument to be made for independent Baptist churches and missional Baptist churches and things like that that are separate, but 
just saying that if we're going to take on the moniker of Southern Baptist Church, that's our, our mission. That's how we participate. Other questions? Good? Yeah, I th- so here's what I would say to that. When, especially a church that's very limited in its funds, uh, I came from a church that wasn't that way, but when, it, when it's a church that's very limited in its funds, I think there's plenty of missional projects out there, translating Bibles like you mentioned, translating books, translating all, doing all kinds of other work that's fantastic and wonderful, and I would say do that. And there's several missionaries that Andrew and I support, but I would say that is... The individual Christian. Support that. Do it. Help with the translation. Help your friend who is overseas doing missional work there. Do it. Help them. But when we're talking about how the collective fund of everybody in this church works, it really shouldn't be for your friend. Right? Because I got a friend too. And I got a friend. And I got a friend. And I got a friend. And everybody got a friend. And all of a sudden we go, let's support everybody's friend. Let's give them all $2, right? <laughs> so you give them all $2 because we only got 150 so by the time we split up amongst everybody's friends, we got $2 for each person. We can't really actually support them, and we don't know who they are. And then all of a sudden, you either uh, leave the church, you die, or you move to Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and, and then we got your friend that we're still supporting, but we don't know who this friend is. We don't know how to contact them. We don't know who they are. Um, just side, one quick thing. Uh, uh, independent missions is, is this church has functioned in two capacities one, independent missions, we still have a list of people that we support and my intention is to continue to let that list stay there and uh, you know, kind of uh, dwindle. dwindle naturally, right but continue to support these people in as much as we can um, and support the cooperative program uh, and that's how the, the church has functioned when I got here, we sent out a packet to all of the people that we support. And it, uh, on it, it had three things that they were to, uh, four things that they were to sign off on. One was the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Okay? It's a standard biblical inerrancy across the board. It's that. The Nashville Statement on Marriage and Sexuality, which is a man is a man, a woman is a woman. The Bible anticipates man and wife together forever. Uh, um, so, and, the, and then the third was uh, the Baptist faith and message. Uh, was it Baptist faith and message? I believe it was. Anyway, uh, it's slipping my mind right now, but I think it was Baptist faith and message. And then we had a list of like 10 things that we, we sign off on, we want, we want them to sign off on too. That we agree in terms of the gospel. Um, I actually received a lot of email communication and phone calls about I don't know if I can sign this. I don't know if I can sign that. And these, they, they're receiving our money. So as a new pastor, I, I was trying not to rock the boat, and it did surprise me a little bit, but I wanted to make sure we're all on the same page and we agreed theologically. And, you know, a couple conversations I had, there was some consensus, okay, I, I, think, I think I can sign that. I, I, I think I, I, I understand that and agree. 
But I also heard in the midst of that, there's some, of, there's some people that I've talked to, and this is a person telling me that I've talked to, that I know that, that they had really had problems with it too. But this is part of what you get into in independent missions, is what does everybody believe? Are the people that we're supporting, do they actually believe and agree to what we agree to? You know, I think in the end they do, but is there equivocation? Are they on the fence? Is there, these seem to be pretty benign statements to me, but why are they not to you? And so that alone is troubling, and it's concerning. And I don't like that idea, uh, but that's what you get into when you don't have particularly the kind of resource to oversee an entire group of missionaries like that. And what happens if they all do agree, but then a year goes by, and they're out there in Abu Dhabi, and they have no one to talk to, and all of a sudden they become Muslim, and they just continue to take your money? What happens then? Who's there to oversee that process? And, and, and so that's why I think part of what Baptists have done is cooperated and entrusted that to the International Mission Board to oversee a lot of those. I've seen a lot of missionaries come off the field because of the IMB. Because they've said, hmm, we're, we're promoting you to customer. You know, <laughs> you need to be hearing the gospel. That kind of thing. Um, you know, and, and I've seen that happen a lot. And it's unfortunate when that does happen, but it's also a testament to that kind of oversight is what you have to have. You know, to actually really support people that are that are out there. So I'm a Southern Baptist, you know. So all right, let's pray and let's be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a time together together and to uh, talk and, and to think and I pray that there's at least some consensus here and just in an agreement, uh, even if it is um, agree to disagree. I, I pray that it be done in a spirit of unity where we can uh, think differently on some issues, we can be in different places on certain issues, but at the end of the day, um, we're still brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we can uh, be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and, and celebrate that, that we are unified in that, and, and diverse on some things, too. But we agree on the principles of faith. Pray that you would work in us and through us to accomplish your purposes for the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.